Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. And while you're looking up Hebrews chapter 9, let's review our memory verse for the summer. We're working on committing this to memory. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35 and 36, they, they form the, uh, the backbone, really the central message of the book of Hebrews. And so that's why we're memorizing them together. So let's just say it out loud together at home. Say it out loud even if you're by yourself. But here it is, Hebrews 10, 35 and 36 says, So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Don't throw away your confidence, and you could even put in parentheses there, in Christ. Don't throw away your confidence in Christ. Like, that's really the the thrust of the book of Hebrews. He's trying to strengthen our confidence in Jesus. And so we've been looking at the different you know, ways that Jesus is so much better, so much superior uh, to any of these other things that we've got on planet Earth. And this morning, we're going to talk about the better blood. And I want to answer this question this morning. Why blood? Have you ever wondered that? Why, if God could choose anything to forgive our sins with, why would he choose blood. Why not say, hey, pay for your sin with a pile of gold or something like that, you know, a loaf of bread, whatever. Why does he choose blood? Sometimes you think, I know you read the Old Testament, it, it maybe looks a little gory. You think, boy, there's all these animals, they're losing their lives, they're getting killed and slaughtered and the blood splattered this way and burned that way. And you think, that's gruesome. Why would God do that? Hang on to that question. We're going to get there. But we're going to start with Hebrews chapter 9, and we're just going to read our way through it and talk our way through it, okay? So if your Bible's open, that'd be really helpful. I'll start with verse 1. Now he says, the first covenant had regulations for worship, and and actually you need to know if that chapter 9 fits with chapter 8 and chapter 7. So this is really, you know, a continuation. And, and if this seems a little disjointed to you, it's because we're actually in part 3 sort of of, this, of the, you know, the sequel. So uh, this is like as bad as Fast and Furious. Like there's a lot of them, you know. So here we are. We're, we're in chapter 9. So... <clears throat> If you need to catch up, that's on the podcast, and you can do that. But chapter 9, verse 1 says this, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place which had the golden altar of incense and the uh, gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, 
Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we can't discuss these things in detail now. I love that. This, it's, it's statements like this that I just love about the Bible because it's so real. Can you picture it? We've said this, right? Hebrews wasn't a book, it was a sermon. Can you not picture this? The pastor's getting all revved up about the tabernacle, and suddenly he sees the time, and he goes, ooh, yeah, we, we don't have time to get into that right now. Let's keep on going. Now, since it wasn't important enough for him to cover then, we're not going to take our time covering it. It doesn't mean it's not important. It's just that's a subject for another day. He continues... Verse 6, when everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood. Can we all say that? Never without blood. Which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as that first tabernacle was still functioning. Just stop right there for a moment. Do you see what he's saying? Okay, picture it in your mind. The tabernacle was basically two parts. You have this large outer courtyard large space, and then at the back of the courtyard, in one you know, side of the whole space, there's this little curtained-off area called the Most Holy Place, and that right there was the very presence of God. Like literally, by day, a cloud of fire, by night, a cloud of fire, a, a pillar of fire, by night, a pillar of fire, by day, a pillar of cloud that was standing over this all the time. It was the literal, just the presence of God. So God is dwelling among the people, but yet you can't get close to him. That's what he's saying. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into that space hasn't been available, made available yet. Can you imagine a religion like that? Can you imagine living like that every day? God is right there, but I can't get to him. He goes on. This, verse 9, is an illustration for the present time. So in other words, for us, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper all. Oh. Now we see. So the sin that all of us have is still there. My conscience is still guilty for the sin that I've committed. I can't get into the presence of God because of that. So how do I take care of my conscience, my guilty conscience? He goes on. They're only a matter, these things are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. Look at that. External. Keyword, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So all of that whole system was just meant to cover the sin problem and not actually deal with 
the sin problem. Think of sweeping it under the carpet. We have that little saying, you know, you take the dirt, you sweep it under the rug. Well, you can sweep it under the rug, put the rug over top of it. It looks clean, but the dirt is still there, isn't it? And you see, this whole system that these guys were under, it was covering the sin. The Bible word for that, that word cover is atone. The word atonement, it's a fancy Bible word. It means simply to cover. That's all it did. Cover it so that you can be in the same general space as the God of the universe and not be killed by him. It's covered, but it's not gone. Boy, well, what do we do? He goes on, verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, isn't that great? So now you and I, clue, you and I are now living in something different, aren't we? We're living in a different reality. You see that? Jesus came of the good thing. There's good things that are now already here. He went through the greater and the more perfect tabernacle that's not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. There's that outward external covering. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences? from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. Whoa. Now remember, any of this ringing any bells? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the six elementary principles. Remember the first of the six elementary principles was what? Had to do with repentance from acts that lead to death. And here we see him bringing this back up again in chapter 9. Jesus cleanses our consciences from what? Acts that lead to death. There's connections all over the place here. So the old system just covers it so that I can be in the same general space. I can be around God. I can't actually get close to him. He's right there. But at least I'm not dying because my sin is covered. Jesus is able to come and actually cleanse my own conscience. I mean, he removes it completely. Do you see how much better that is? Would you rather have the dirt gone or just covered? Gone. Yeah, these aren't trick questions. I'd rather have it gone than have it just covered. And he says Jesus is able, with his blood, is able to wipe it away completely, cleanse the conscience from acts that lead to death. For this reason, he says, verse 15, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant 
that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. I love that word picture. You see that picture there? A ransom. Jesus died as a ransom. Let's talk through that word picture for a moment. Jesus' death, his blood was the ransom. In other words, you and I were abducted by sin. Our sin kidnapped us and held us captive. And then sin demanded a ransom payment in order for you and me to be set free from its grip. And the ransom that sin demanded was blood. And Jesus said, I'll I'll pay it. I love these people so much. I will pay it so that they can be set free from sin's grip. Isn't that beautiful? You and I are held captive by our own sin. Now, I I like this word picture too because you can kind of run with it a little bit. And, you know, I'm thinking if I was kidnapped, now I've never been actually kidnapped, but if I had been kidnapped, actually, that would cause a little bit of trauma, don't you figure? It might cause a little trauma that you could be set free from the captor, but there would still be some effects of that captivity in my thinking, in my soul, that would require some therapy to help me get through. And isn't that the Christian life? Like I'm set free from the captivity, but there's trauma still from the sin, still from that in my life that it's going to take the rest of my life as I follow with Jesus and get closer to Jesus. It's going to take the rest of my life for some of that trauma to get unworked, get dealt with. Any, any victims of the trauma of sin here? Aren't we all? And we're, and we're, that's the Christian life, isn't it? I love that picture. So this is the first word picture, that there's a ransom, you and I captive, Jesus paid it. There's another word picture. Look at the verse 16. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. So here's a second word picture. Back-to-back word pictures, and we're going to come back to these at the end, but back-to-back word pictures, a ransom, a will. Think through a will. My wife and I have a will. It needs to be updated. We keep telling ourselves that, but haven't done it yet. But we do have one, and basically it's if the both of us pass away, you know, our assets get split three ways between our three children, and it's that straightforward. It's pretty simple. But... The key to that will, the key to our children receiving the benefits of those assets is Karis and I have to die. As long as Karis and I are both still living, we have control of those assets. Do we not? You see this word picture? Come on. This is pretty cool. God has a will. And you are named in that will. And in order for you to receive the blessing of that inheritance, God has to die. 
And so Jesus steps in, second person of the Trinity, and he dies so that you might receive the blessing and the benefit of that will. Now, these two word pictures are awesome when you put them together because one sets me free from something and the other sets me free to something. I'm set free from the captivity of sin and I'm given the inheritance of God. And both of those have come to me through the blood of Jesus. And this is what he says, verse 18, this is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, let's all read verse 22 together. Can we do that? The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This connects to verse 7. Remember how we emphasize that in verse 7? The, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies and never without blood. And here we have verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That's a whoo. Hang on to that. We're going to come back to it, okay? Let's continue reading, and we'll finish the chapter, and then we're going to circle back. Verse 23. It was, so verse 23 through 28 form one whole picture. It says this. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Stop right there real quick. Do you remember last week? Chapter 8, we were comparing the two tabernacles, the one on earth, the one in heaven. And remember, Moses' tabernacle was called a copy and a shadow, wasn't it? And now here we are in chapter 9. He brings that up again. Connection, verse 23. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly one, I mean, you can't sprinkle you can't take a bull's blood and throw it up to heaven. That doesn't work. So he says the heavenly things themselves had to be cleansed with some better sacrifices. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus showed up one time 
in the history of this planet at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin itself. I love that. Whoa. But just as people are destined to die once, can I say thank you, Jesus, that I only have to go through that one time, right? Destined to die once. Uh, kind of reminds me of what Woody Allen said. Remember the great theologian Woody Allen? He said, he said I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. You know, I'm kind of glad I only have to do that once, he says. It's just as people are destined to die once, and after that they face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Everybody say waiting. Everybody say waiting. He's waiting. To those who are waiting for him will bring salvation. So what's, what's happening here in these 20, verses 23 through 28 is this. He's, he's using the Day of Atonement. This is all uh, language and images out of the Day of Atonement. And he's, and he's using this to illustrate what Jesus is doing and to illustrate what your salvation is. Okay? So, so you and I don't fully get the Day of Atonement, so let me just review it real quick. The Day of Atonement, it's the most important day on the Jewish calendar. It still is. Has been since Moses' time. One day a year. It's the one day when the sins of the people are covered. They're atoned so that they can be in a right standing with God for another year on the Day of Atonement. And it's actually the, the, the Day of Atonement this year is coming up in September, just in, you know, six, seven weeks, the Day of Atonement. And what would happen is this. Everybody comes to the tabernacle. They're all crowded in that outer courtyard. Remember I said you got these, this big courtyard. In the back of the courtyard is this little space with the curtain. And behind the curtain is the Holy of Holies. And so everybody's out in this courtyard. And the high priest is there in the front. And he has these two goats. And the first goat he puts his hand on and he kills the goat. He slaughters the goat. Takes the blood. Splatters it on different things. Burns the goat in the, burnt, in the offering, in the, in the fire, in the burnt offering. And then he takes the second goat. It's called the scapegoat. And he leans on the scapegoat. And he transfers the sins of the people onto the scapegoat. And then another priest takes the scapegoat and takes it out of the tabernacle area. And can you picture this? This is all very dramatic. It's... It's, it's sensory overload. The people have just watched this goat die and its blood be splattered to pay for our sin. And then the second goat, now our sin's being transferred onto this goat, and now a priest is taking it and leading it through the crowd out of the tabernacle. And he's taking it out into the wilderness. And many commentators think that what he did was he would literally take the goat and, and push it off of a cliff. But the idea is this, that our sins are being carried away from the tabernacle. See, our sins have stained this sacred space. 
Our sins have dirtied this place. And now this goat is carrying our sins away, far away. This one goat paid for it. The other goat took them away. And then the priest takes this blood and he goes, takes his incense and he goes and he ducks behind this curtain, this big thick curtain. And behind that curtain is the Ark of the Covenant. It's the presence of God is right there. And all the people are waiting outside, waiting. You see how verse 28 says that Jesus is bringing salvation to those who are waiting. In the Day of Atonement, they're waiting outside while the priest is in the Holy of Holies. And they're just hoping that God has accepted their offering. They don't know it for sure. And the whole time that the high priest is behind the curtain, they're not, there's, a, there's a suspense in the air. They're, and they're, they're not sure Will the Lord receive our sacrifice? I mean, they all had heard about what happened to Nadab and Abihu. The two sons of Aaron, the first high priest, dropped dead in the presence of God. They did it wrong. Struck dead. And they're all thinking, maybe this priest is going to do it wrong. And if he does it wrong, we're screwed for another year. Our sins aren't covered you see the suspense? And then there's this collective sigh of relief as the high priest appears again, you know, from behind the curtain. Oh, okay. The Lord has received our offering. Our, our, our sins have been covered. The day of atonement is complete. Oh, okay. See? Now, the pastor of Hebrews uses this picture and he says, this is what Jesus did, only Jesus didn't just go through this physical curtain. Like Jesus, he represented us right before the very throne of God. And he didn't do it with the blood of a goat or a bull. He did it with his own perfect blood. And, and so now we're standing here, and, and of course we are much more confident than the Old Testament Israelites would have been. Can't we be? I mean, I know Jesus isn't going to screw this up, so I can stand outside now, and I'm waiting. And he says here in verse 28 that Christ will appear, appear, see there? So right now, you and I, it's as though you and I are waiting outside the Holy of Holies, and we're waiting for the second coming of Christ. We're waiting for his return. He's going to appear and it says he's going to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Isn't that interesting? We've learned this. We've, we've, we've touched on this several times as we've gone through the book of Hebrews. It changes the way that you and I have probably defined what being saved means. Because modern American evangelicals, we've communicated saved as being a decision that you made one time. And certainly, that's a great thing. Make a decision for Christ. Absolutely. Do that. But salvation is so much more. It's, there's this waiting. He's bringing salvation to those who are waiting for him. And you see how that goes with perseverance? And how it goes with our memory verse? Remember the memory verse? Don't throw away your 
confidence in Christ, it will be rewarded. Where's my confidence? I'm waiting. Come on, Jesus. Come on, Lord. See? And he says, this is what it means. This is what the Christian life, it, it, it is. It's what it means to be saved. I'm waiting for Jesus to come and to complete this transaction. And all oh, that's going to be a glorious day. Amen? Isn't it? Woo! Come Jesus now. Now, it brings up this question, though. Why blood? We come back to verse 22. Without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness. So Jesus' blood, blood is central to this whole thing, isn't it? If there's no blood, there's no forgiveness. If there's no blood, there's no Jesus coming back. If there's no blood, I'm waiting for nothing. Like, blood is the key ingredient to this whole scenario. Why blood? When God could choose anything, why would he choose blood to be the price that has to be paid for our sin to make us right with himself? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever read your Old Testament and you think, boy, that's gory. You're killing Fluffy every day. And, and the goat and the bull and the man, God, what's up with that? Lord, why... Is the Christian faith really that bloody and gory? Like, why? what is it? I remember years ago, many years ago, was it Catherine, sweetie? She, Karis, Karis was there. She, I think she had Catherine, our oldest daughter, in the grocery store. And, and she's singing at the top of her lungs, All oh, the blood of Jesus. You know, she's just innocent little child singing as loud as she can sing in the middle of the grocery store. And Karis is like, she felt a little awkward. I mean, like people, you know, if you're an outsider, you're like, this, what song is this kid singing? <laughs> this kid's singing about blood. Like, what's up with this kid, right? Why blood? Why? I think we can answer that question. First of all, <clears throat> let, me, let me take us back to it, and then I'm going to walk us through it, okay? So we start back with verse 15. For this reason... Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. And look at verse 18, this is why, this is why the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. So the pastor of Hebrews is explaining why blood. Isn't that clear? Yeah, I, I see the light bulbs going on everywhere. This is great. End of story. Let's, let's talk why blood. There's a, there's a flow of logic that I need to give to you, okay? So please follow me. Don't, don't stop with step one. There's a flow. Stick with me all the way to the end, okay? So the first thing that we need to consider is this. We need to consider <clears throat> what is... Well, first of all, we need to consider the seriousness of sin. 
you and I, I'll just say it, we don't appreciate how serious sin is. We've been insulated from its effects a lot of times, and we just don't see it. But you need to understand that sin is extremely serious, and we'll get there in a moment. The second thing that we need to understand is, um, <clears throat> what is the most precious thing on planet Earth created by God? Like human life. Human life is the pinnacle of creation. Is it not? You see that in Genesis chapter 1. He creates everything. The last thing he creates is people. Man, right? So human life in the heart of God is the pinnacle of creation. There's nothing more precious on created earth than human life. Therefore, God says that when that the, that the punishment... The punishment, the consequence of taking human life is human life. Because that's the only price you can put on it. If, so if I murder you, well, the consequence of that is that my life must be taken. Because it's the only way that justice can really be served is if, right? I can't pay for your life with, what price can you put on that? See, human life is priceless. The only thing that could pay for human life would be human life. Follow the logic of that? Okay. Now, next thing we need to consider is this. Sin is fatal. Sin brings death. Sin is death. Sin causes death. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, God told Adam and Eve that not to eat the fruit of this tree. The moment that you eat the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. Sin brings death. Now, Adam and Eve didn't die right away, did they? You could imagine them eating the fruit, waiting to drop dead, and then they didn't. And then finally, okay, well, I guess, I guess that was a lie, and they keep on going. But eventually they died, didn't they? They're not here right now. And you and I are surrounded by death every day. Funeral homes are a recession-proof business because death happens all the time. Funerals happen every day. Whether you're young, whether you're old, it doesn't matter, does it? Death is a part of life now, is it not? And it's here. Why? Sin. Sin leads to death. Sin leads to also a million other kinds of deaths. If you just think about this, everything wrong in our world is the result of sin. All of the things that bother you, all of the things that are just, that weigh heavy on you, all of the injustices and the brokenness and, and the lying and the cheating and the stealing and the uncertainty and the lack of security and the poverty and the... You, all of it shouldn't be here. It's all here as a result of sin. You could say, you, we can honestly, safely say, we live in the world we created, not the one that God created. 
God created a perfect world. We brought sin into it, and all of the brokenness has come as a result. We're living in the world we created. And it's a mess. Wouldn't you agree? It's a mess. And not only is every wrong in the world a result of sin, every wrong in my little world is the result of sin. And I don't have to go very far to connect the dots between my sin and death. Every lie brings about the death of trust. Every, 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 every cheat, every fudge of the numbers, everything stolen, it, it brings about a death of, of security. You know, I think about this, like, like, you know, many of you know, it was about 11 years ago now that uh, our church office was robbed one morning when I was there, and they stole my backpack, had my wallet and all that stuff in it, you know. That's been 11 years. Can I tell you, I still double-check the locks. Do you see how a death occurred as a result of that sin? See? Every, I mean, think about it. You, you blow your top and yell and scream and lose your cool with your kids. You don't think that causes a death in their little hearts of some sort? Just, it doesn't take much. You just connect the dots and you can easily see sin leads to death. Now, what's the price on a human life? Life. Life for life. Blood is life. If you lose blood, you lose life. I mean, doesn't the Red Cross even say that? Give blood, give life. It's their saying. Because blood is the source of life. It's where life is found. It's the, it's the very you know, seed of life, if you will. Blood. And so blood is the appropriate price for sin. Sin brings death. Blood brings life. Blood triumphs over sin. See this? Um, wow. But here's the problem. The problem is this. If I gave a pint of blood for every sin that I committed to pay for the sin, I'm going to run out of blood by lunch, right? I mean, I'm going to run out of blood very quickly, and so will you. So now I need a substitute to pay for the sin because I can't pay for it myself. And this is where you have the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. How many thousands, oh, tens of hundreds of thousands of innocent animals lost their lives in that system to cover for the sin of human beings? But do you see what God was doing, I think, in that? was he's training us. There was a training taking place there in the Old Testament. Imagine what God did. Just think about this. He, he brought the consequences of our sin 
right up into our faces, did he not? Like, like every time, let's say I sin. This is the way that it worked in the book of Leviticus. I sin, I have to bring my, my, my lamb to the priest, to the tabernacle. It's called the, it's called the sin offering. And I bring this, and, and I'm supposed to lay my hand on this lamb. And as I lay my hand on this, this creature, the Bible says you, know, you lay hands, but it's actually lean heavy is the Hebrew word. I'm leaning on this. I'm pushing down on this lamb. And as I do, I confess my sin. So right away, there's an instant connection. Is there not my sin, this creature? And as I lean my hand on this creature, the priest takes the knife and slices its throat. And I'm leaning down, and as this creature's life begins to ebb, it gets lower and lower, and I get lower and lower until I'm taking this thing and pushing it right to the ground. And as it loses its life, I'm reminded that's because of my sin. And then I take this this carcass, and I put it onto the altar where there's a constant fire being burnt. The priests were commanded to never let that fire go out, never. Night and day it was to burn, which I think is beautiful in itself because it was a picture that God's forgiveness was always available. But they take this thing, and they put it on the altar, and it burns, and I'm watching this. You don't think that the severity of my sin is obvious, right? It's as clear as day. This, this innocent animal has lost its life because of my sin. That's the only reason. And it doesn't even get eaten. Like in, a, in, a sin, in the sin offering, I didn't even eat it. Like it literally just is gone as payment for my sin. I got to think that somehow that, that would bring home the severity of my sin to me. Don't you? And that's why a, a number of weeks ago here in our study in Hebrews, I said this, I made this statement, we've lived in grace for so long that we've forgotten our need for it. And, and, and partly the reason why we, why we are not aware of the severity of our sin is Thank you, Jesus. But at the same time, it's important that I not forget that. And, and I believe that that's why Jesus told us, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. One of the very purposes of communion is to bring us back monthly, month after month after month, every time we remember, to remember that innocent blood was shed so that the death that my sin caused could be covered and life could be had. And now, we, and now we come here to Hebrews and this pastor is making this illustration and he's driving it home so powerfully, isn't he? Where you have the ransom, the ransom. And he says, you and I are taken captive by our own sin and we're abducted by this and the price, the ransom is blood. And Jesus says, I'll pay it. And then the second one is the will. And in order for, the, for you to receive the benefit of that will, has to die. 
and he says, I'll do it. See, and you think, you think, well, let me go back. I, I, I got ahead of myself. Go back to the Old Testament. Look at animal after animal after animal lost their life. If you think about it, there aren't enough animals to pay for the sins of humanity. I mean, there just aren't. So you know what we need? We need a better blood. Is it possible that there's one blood that is so pure, one blood that is so powerful, so infinitely powerful, that it is strong enough to cover the sins of humanity once for all time? There's only one who has that kind of blood. God who became a man. And this is why he came. This is why blood. To set you and me free. His life for our life. It's life for life. In, a, in the negative sense, it's life for life. Life has been taken, therefore life must be given as a substitute. But in the positive, it's life for life. He gives his life that we might have life. So it's both of those. Isn't that beautiful? Friends, this is what we have in Christ. This is why we wait. We wait because he's going to return and he will bring salvation. He's paid for my sin. You and I are freed from it. It's no longer just covered over. It's no longer just covered over. It's gone. Did you see that in Hebrews 9? It's gone. He did away with it. See verse 20, verse 26, he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do what with sin? Do away with it. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. It's gone. It's gone. It no longer no longer has to be an issue in your life or mine because his blood was powerful enough to do away with it. Thank you, Jesus. So here's what I want to do this morning. And uh, team, you can come and, and play if you'd like. Um, I want to invite you to receive the blood of Jesus on your life to invite you to accept his sacrifice on your behalf. Do you see why it's foolish for you or anybody to think that somehow you can make things right with God? How are you going to take care of your sin problem? It's just not possible. So I invite you this morning to receive the gift that Jesus has given to you to make you right with the God of the universe, to remove your sin, not just cover it, remove it, that you would be set free and that you would receive the benefit and the blessing of his will in your life. Wow. Would you receive that today?
Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.